and the scriptures today. Let's start with a prayer so we are good listeners. Emmanuel, as we wait for your return, help us see your glory and love through the reading and preaching of your word. We pray in your name. Amen. Matthew 1, 21 through 23 is the first scripture. In this text, an angel appeared to Joseph in a dream and told him something important about his fiancée, Mary. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Our second passage is from the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Well, it's been a while since I've been up here preaching, uh, and I haven't been up here all Advent preaching to you, and so I haven't had the chance to say this, but I'm just bursting to say it, I just, I just am so excited about it that I finally get to say, Merry Christmas! <laughs> you know, in the UK, you're more likely to be greeted with the words, Happy Christmas. There's a long story. Look it up. <laughs> but merry or happy, either way, the picture comes across loud and clear. It's the most wonderful time of the year. Christmas is a season full of joy and delight, silent nights and midnight clears, a blissful time of holiday cheer. A pretty picture is painted by a variety of brushes, the songs and stories of our culture, our own nostalgic longings, and of course, the projections of ardent advertisers. And it is amazing how often Christmas truly is merry. But also, Christmas experienced in the real world by human beings might also be called a messy Christmas. Messy Christmas. The most wonderful time of the year? Is it? The picture of a Merry Christmas doesn't always match up to the reality. Perhaps you've already thought to yourself this year how another year is going to go by and you will not have shown your love to your spouse in a way that only this gift can do it. You spending $50,000 along with a big red bow buying your spouse that luxury automobile that they've always wanted. Now, some of you may have done that. Um, I'm still waiting for my day. (laughs) To give it. To give it, right? (laughs) On the other hand, 
you might have learned the hard way. That the generous gift that you're so excited about giving comes across in a negative way that you never even imagined and couldn't anticipate. Like a certain fictitious husband who thinks the classiest gift for his wife is a Peloton exercise bike. (laughs) And of course, until the real world Twitterverse erupts in contempt amid cries of chauvinism. Maybe... It's more that the home for the holidays scene isn't quite materializing for you this year. Real life means real grief when a loved one passes away. And the first Christmas without them can feel cold and empty. Something that it may continue to feel like even years later. We might be longing for that special someone to share the holidays with or to share life with. But right now, they only exist in our dreams, and we'll spend a good share of this season alone. And then there's the assumption that the proverbial peace and goodwill of the season extends to each and every one of our relationships, a myth that's shattered by every moment of loud argument or anxious silence. Then there's the lack of time. There's so much to do and appreciate during the Christmas holiday season, but so little time. And isn't it strange, or ironic, or indeed tragic, that our work seems to ramp up at this time, whether it's at our places of employment or our schoolwork, when finals happen. Then there's the state of the world. And this is a large picture to consider indeed. Peace on earth doesn't always seem like it when another tragic shooting unfolds and political divisiveness dominates the headlines. All this, and we haven't even mentioned challenges with our health, both physically and mentally, our well-being. Wouldn't it be great if everyone was healthy for the holidays? Messy Christmas is a version of Merry Christmas in which the weakness of the human condition is acknowledged. Human weakness, a term that describes our limitations, our struggles, and our challenges. We long for wholeness, but we experience incompleteness. Contrary to what we may project, and this is from me personally, uh, referencing also all of the the guys in our audience today. Contrary to what we might project, we don't know everything. (laughs) Our understanding actually is incomplete. There are things we don't know. And we don't understand others fully, let alone understanding ourselves. We long for wellness, but we experience illness, whether it's our body or our mind or our emotions, it's rare for there to be a time when we ourselves or a loved one is not experiencing some kind of suffering. And zeroing in on one of the the dimensions of human weakness spoken of in our Hebrews text today, we are susceptible to temptations. We're tempted to respond to fear with 
anger and violence. We're tempted to respond to frustration by lashing out at others or giving them the silent treatment. We're tempted to respond to sensual desires with lustful thoughts, to hurt with bitterness. We're tempted to lose hope in the midst of a messy Christmas. Well, into our messy Christmas, characterized by the weakness of the human condition, the words of the biblical book of Hebrews suggest that there's hope in the form of a high priest. Since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God. Now, this may come across as quite strange in the midst of a series on the incarnation, on God come to human earth, in human lives on earth, in the messiness of the human condition, in the ordinariness of human life. And yet we see these words and hear these words read Since we have a great high priest, isn't that distancing Jesus and God again? Who has ascended into heaven? Wait, that's way far away where I live. Jesus, the Son of God. Well, okay, Jesus, but the Son of God. Hebrews is a New Testament writing that is making sense of Jesus after the full story of his incarnation. The full story includes these chapters, the Jesus being born, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension into heaven. And Hebrews is asking a question that we do. We're divided by a great historical distance, but we are on both on this side of all of those chapters, asking the question, so what difference does it make to human life now that Jesus is no longer walking this earth? You got that part of the story, right? I mean, if you're new to it, you might hear people talk about Jesus and a relationship with Jesus. Here's the straight scoop. Jesus, as a human being, is no longer walking the earth. We believe, as a point of our faith, based on this scriptural account, that once in real time on this earth, Jesus, God incarnate, walked this earth. But we also know from the story that there was a time after his resurrection from the dead that he ascended to heaven, and in that move, he no longer is a physical human being walking this earth. So what do we do with that? How does this whole Jesus incarnation thing involve our regular life, our daily life, when it seems like Jesus has moved away, gone back to heaven? He came to live in our neighborhood for a while, But did he like it? Seems like he moved right back to the safety of his eternal home. In Matthew chapter 1, we were reminded of Jesus as the fulfillment of the long-told coming of Emmanuel, meaning God with us. But in that text from Matthew, that key Advent Christmas text, we are also given a clue to Jesus' enduring ministry, including ministry today, through the meaning of his name. The text says that he will be given the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus is a name meaning God saves. 
And at this time in my sermon preparations, I was at my laptop in my living room, and I just thought I'd quiz Alexa. And I said, Alexa, what does the name Jesus mean? And I think this is really kind of cool. Alexa said, in Spanish. Isn't that cool? Yeah, because Jesus is still a name given to many people. Jesus, right? Uh, In Spanish, the name Jesus means God will help. And I think that's an important understanding of the dimension of Jesus' role, his identity as Savior. That to save, sometimes we, we jump into the end times and into the farthest away heaven when we think about Jesus being the Savior. But part of Jesus being the Savior is to save us daily, is to provide the help that we need. And that connects us in to the Hebrew text In Hebrews 4.14, Jesus is referred to as the Son of God. Jesus, the Son of God. That phrase encapsulates the incarnation. Jesus is a human name. It's not a spiritual name. Jesus is the name of the person, Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth, who was born in Bethlehem. That's Jesus. But in the mystery of the Trinity and the mystery of the Incarnation, Jesus was also the Son of the very living God. This text and this verse that speaks of the ascension of Jesus describes a movement that establishes Jesus in close proximity with the eternal God, this human Jesus' heavenly Father. And while Jesus was on earth living his daily life, He needed help from his human side. And where did he go for that help? He went to his father, his his earthly father, with things like how to craft a table as a carpenter. But to his heavenly father, we know from the biblical text that Jesus cried out and prayed to his father using an Aramaic word that in the language of that time meant daddy. A term of endearment that a son or a daughter would use of their father. Daddy, Abba. The ascension of Jesus to heaven puts Jesus closer to the father. That's the first thing to recognize. And what Jesus is doing in God's eternal presence. So think of heaven more in this sense as God's command center. Right? You think that there's all got to be a center, right? Where you, when you're thinking of the mind and the heart of God, this is where Jesus is right now. Now, we believe Jesus can be present to us through the Holy Spirit, that one person of the Trinity. That's how Jesus can be close. What Jesus is doing right now is performing the duties of the great high priest. A high priest has a very serious but very simple job description to represent human beings before an eternal God. That's the way it was in the Old Testament. The priest was the one who represented the people in their interaction with the Almighty God, especially around sacrifices. And there were many sacrifices, but the one we think of most readily is the sacrifice, the atoning sacrifice for sin. They serve in a relay capacity as a go-between or mediator between God and people. Now, Jesus is the great high priest. He's greater than any merely human priest because he has been glorified. 
he is not relating to God the Father from a distance, but he's been raised to God's, in a sense, heavenly level. No human limitation separates our great high priest from God. And this relational proximity is especially important in the mechanics of prayer. When Christians pray in Jesus' name, we recognize that Jesus is in close relationship with the Father, helping to bring our concerns to God's heart. Jesus is spoken of in Hebrews and in other places in the New Testament as our advocate. It even says that Jesus, in his role as high, of high priest, continues to pray for us, to intercede on our behalf, bringing his prayers to his Father, the one he knows intimately as Abba, Daddy. In the Alpha Course, Nicky Gumbel famously illustrates this in terms of the British royal family. He lists off a sequence, a long list of formal royal titles of Prince Charles. And there are quite a few. And they sound very pompous indeed. But those titles serve a purpose. To reinforce the social distance between commoners and royalty. And yet he makes this point, that to William and Harry, he's daddy. And I realize that as time goes on, and as fast as time flies, and the next generation emerges, a few years pass by, and now we can add another royal generation that can speak of their parents, who are royalty, as daddy. The almighty, eternal God is way beyond us as human beings. But the ascended Jesus brings us close through his family connection. I discovered something when I got married. Just one thing. <laughs> Among a number of wonderful things I discovered, I discovered that there was a kind of a there's a lot of things that when I grew up were kind of a mystery to me and, and would be kind of things that I'd be intimidated by. Uh, and no one in our family, the family I grew up in, had glasses. So, so the whole idea, like if I had to go to the eye doctor and then go get glasses, I'd be totally intimidated. Well, I, I met Crystal, and I got to know her family, and her father uh, is an optician, and he owned a number of optical stores. And so as I got to know Crystal... I realized just how, how simple a, a, a prospect it was if you needed glasses. She would just go to it. She didn't have to go to an optical store or a glasses store. She just said to her dad across the kitchen table, Dad, I think I need a new pair of glasses. That's her need. And her dad, who loved Crystal, said, okay, what do you want? That even recently happened this summer where Crystal needed an adjustment to her eyeglasses and, and there was dad right there. Now some of you have experienced that in different lines of work where, where you're invited into some type of access through relationship. Uh, in our culture, we can refer to that as social capital that's of a certain variety called bridging social capital. Um, it allows you to, to get to know and take advantage of certain opportunities through the people you know. Um, and is one of the things that actually helps in economic development, expanding the number of people that people might know um, with that. But that's really what's being spoken of here in Hebrews chapter 4. 
Jesus, when he was, say, a, like a teenager, he might have friends who, who had projects, carpentry projects. He could, he could go to his father, Joseph, and say, Dad, uh, we really need to work on this particular project. And Joseph, out of his love for Jesus, would, would say, all right, son, let's do it. Jesus does that with his heavenly father, with our needs. He, he comes to Jesus as, as an intercessor, as one who is an advocate, and brings our needs before our heavenly father. Now, here's where the incarnation comes in. The, thing, the part of this arrangement that could not have happened without God becoming flesh. Because of the incarnation, Jesus understands us when we go to God for help. Because he's been there. He's able to empathize with our weaknesses. He was tempted in every way, just as we are, but did not sin. This is Hebrews 4.15. The most important characteristic of a high priest is the ability to empathize with the people being represented before God. Think about it. If your calling in life is to represent sinful human beings before a holy God, and you, yourself, stand in judgment in relation to those human beings, you are failing at your job. Because your job is not to judge. That's God's job. Your job is to work on a daily basis with sinful, weak human beings and bring their needs before a God who can bring help. A high priest without empathy would be like a doctor who by calling is someone who helps heal broken bones, who derisively uh, turns up their nose and looks down on people who come to the office with a broken arm, for instance. Like, how could you ever let that happen? Well, their very calling is to help people who have broken bones and to help repair those. Someone with that calling is always working with people who have suffered accidents, so empathy for their situation is important for the job. Understanding that accidents happen is part of the work. And I suppose you could say that about a lot of professions, from insurance agent to car body mechanic. One way that empathy is built is through human experience. Presented with a young patient with a fractured arm, a doctor might remember going through a similar trip to the doctor, him or herself, or certainly would connect in from an experience of, of having seen people go through this before. The empathy really makes a difference to the patient being helped. Have you ever reached out for help and felt like the person you reached out to doesn't care or understand? When you feel understood, that understanding makes all the difference. See, a high priest needs to understand the weakness of the human condition personally, and Jesus understands because he experienced it himself. Adding it to this previous point of his ascension from earth to God's command center, here's the, the key point. And this challenges some of our, of our understandings of the Christian story. Think of the literal sense of Jesus ascending to heaven. Jesus' humanity, his experience and empathy of human weakness did not rub off 
on his journey back to heaven. He still has it. And in fact, Jesus, you might wonder, well, what's different about Jesus now than before the incarnation? The difference is now, in the presence of the eternal God, is empathy for human weakness. Understanding. Because God, in the mystery of Father, Son, Holy Spirit, has experienced it personally. Jesus, now exalted, is still related to us by experience, and nothing detracts from his ability to empathize with our human weakness and weariness. So our question today is, how are you experiencing human weakness in your life today? Jesus understands. He's been there. The result of all of this power-packed, distilled theology in Hebrews 4, and indeed, the meaning of the incarnation is that heavenly help is available now on this earth. Heavenly help is available now, and we are invited to cry out for it. Actually, step up to the Almighty God And with open arms and open hands, ask for it in a way that is brazenly confident that God will deliver. Approach God's throne with confidence and receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We can be confident as we approach God in prayer, asking for help in our time of need. We can live into this major benefit of the incarnation that through Jesus, God understands our human struggles and offers to help. Think about the different times when we reach out for help. We might reach out for directions when we find ourselves lost, when we're out traveling. We might go to a doctor seeking medical advice. We might have had uh, an accident Maybe a car accident or, or uh, had a, a leak in the water line at home. And we reach out to our insurance agent for help. This is the season where a lot of people purchase items for gifts. And uh, whether you're the purchaser or the one who receives the gift, it may not work exactly perfectly. And you may call customer service. And you reach out for help. And you hope, don't you? You might reach out for help on a homework assignment that you struggle to comprehend. You might reach out for help uh, asking someone to take care of your beloved pet while you're on vacation. New parents, moms and dads might reach out for support and tips uh, that others might be able to offer them from the time when they went through those challenges of parenting. You might need help with a move from one home to another. You might need help with moving something too heavy for you to carry on your own. I think about in these last two instances how two ministries that that go by acronyms do that in our midst on a regular basis. MOPS helps parents. And HELPS team helps people with those home projects that they can't do, that people can't do themselves. Now, when you reach out, because uh, let's take the HELPS team, for example. I'll just, I'll just be honest about this. I have reached out for help uh, from the HELPS team. 
Now, when you reach out for help, you might be thinking there's shame in that, right? What if you reach out for help and someone says, oh, isn't that a pity? <laughs> right? <laughs> Fix your own problem, Pastor Kurt. You see, we can laugh about that, but there's a place inside us that we wonder, is that the response that we're going to get when we reach out for help? It's happened in the past. We might hesitate. The person we're reaching out to, do they value us? Do they care? Will they respond? But just like these requests, there is no reason to have shame in reaching out for help. Our weakness is met by God with his grace, an open and loving response, and mercy, understanding, and a lack of judgment that would distance us from God. And here's the conclusion. At the center of the true meaning of Christmas is a message that matters in the midst of our messy Christmases. The Savior is revealed as the one who provides help to human weakness now, in real time. Whatever help we need, we can approach God with confidence. Grace and mercy will meet us there. In the human condition, our human cry is Who understands me? In Jesus, the Son of God, we find that Jesus is a Savior who understands me. Amen.